0: Hello, and welcome to the Real Tech, Real Life podcast, a conversational medley with four women who've been there, done that, and lived to tell about it. Welcome back to the Real Tech, Real Life podcast podcast. Today, we're at episode eight, talking about scope to delivery, managing projects, managing customers. And this is a uh, obviously a part of our ongoing series on the life cycles of a professional services firm. So when we talk about managing, we talked about a couple of episodes ago, a little bit about the fact that uh, with services, you're never delivering a in-the-box product. You're always Uh, shaping that product or shaping a a set of deliverables specific to a customer. So because of that, it takes a product management role that you might find in a traditional service or traditional software company. And it takes it to another level because now you have an external customer and, and, uh, many times you've got, you know, requirements going on the fly and that sort of thing. So there's a, there's an element and also you have to manage a budget in a way that's a little bit different than you might manage as a product manager within an organization. So with that in context, um, I think the, uh, one of the things that we'd love to talk a little bit about, I'm going to open it very broad here, um, but there are different ways of managing projects, uh, very, uh, uh, very you know, process-oriented, those that are a little bit more ad hoc, but uh, probably the two broadest uh, project methodologies are Agile and Waterfall. So would love for, from the panel here to get this going, uh, to get your thoughts on the pros and cons of Waterfall versus Agile.
1: Sorry, I got dropped off. So you may have to kind of, I got dropped off and I have to rejoin. So I missed what you asked. Yeah, no,
0: I'm going to tee up the, I'll tee up the question one more time. So, so let's just throw this out there. Uh, agile projects or agile project methodology versus waterfall project methodology. What are the pros and cons between the two?
2: So I, I'm going to give a high level, but I think Miriam's probably going to be able to go into more detail on this one. But I mean, I think traditionally waterfall, obviously, is you kind of you come up with all of the requirements up front. Um, even when we sell this in the cloud world, we like to say, and then you go away for six months and you build something and you come back and period, you're done. I, I know it's not exactly kind of works like that, um, which is where agile, where you come up with kind of, you know, a, the core roadmap of where you're trying to go and some of the core re- requirements um, and then you build them out as you go and this is applicable particularly in the cloud ecosystem in that you can um, you know, start to build them out, show the client, have the client walk through it, build them out some more, have the client walk through it. And I think just from a, a high level, well that anyway is kind of my definition and I probably have some pros and cons on that, but maybe Miriam, I know you've spent a lot of time studying these things maybe
1: <laughs> better than um, me. Uh, well, I don't know about better than you, but I, I definitely have very Strong opinions about it. Um, <laughs> really? Doctor. Just about this one particular topic, not generally. No, <laughs> that's not true. Um, I think uh, it, it's, it's an interesting question and it's a philosophical one because there is a time and place for each. And I, and I think there is definitely a pros and cons to it. Um, I think uh, it depends on who the pros and cons are for. I think ultimately an agile approach is for the customer because it's much more adaptable and there is uh, input and feedback that's coming in that is much more frequent. Um, however, the cons to that is that it's a lot harder thing to manage from a consulting firm standpoint, something that changes very rapidly against what was initially agreed upon. <clears throat> Flip side on the waterfall side, The cons is for the customer because the customer, oftentimes during the sales cycle, will say, hey, I want this. But we all know that the people who are involved in the sales cycle, so you have an idea of what the customer wants, but don't become really crystal clear until later on when you actually start talking to the users to understand the nuances in what the needs are, the realities on the ground, the the complexities that may exist. Uh, So if you had gone the waterfall way, either would have to be in a constant uh, change order mode, uh, or you would be building something that the customer ultimately will not use. But the pros for that for a consulting firm is that it's very defined. A project manager will be able to manage to a very defined set of Scope, timeline and a budget.
0: And this may be a false um, assumption, but I think a lot of folks assume a waterfall project is going to go on for years. If not, certainly a large number of months versus years before they see any results. Um, Agile tends to imply, or at least there's a perception that customers are going to see things sooner. Doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be able to use them all, but see them sooner. I mean, is that a fair Uh, a fair assessment or is that a false uh, uh, kind of a false uh, expectation?
1: I think it's fair um, because again, at Waterfall, the life cycle, you can't, you don't get to develop and build anything until you've gone through the entire requirements gathering. The larger the project goes on, you could have months of requirements gathering and no build so you can't really show anything. Uh, But in in an agile uh, world, you are able to start feature at a time. You have an overall roadmap, but you can start with a feature and you cycle through it, you iterate through it, so you can you get to build faster. Um, I wanna hear what the others think, but I do wanna talk about how we do things at Appirio and this notion of a water scrum fall, which ultimately to me is the right balance of both, brings the best of both worlds together, which I, I, I'm a believer now. I am eating my own dog food and I see it be successful not easy but it's a successful way to make it work work have a workable agile in a soft, in a consulting world so let me
0: go ahead Lori. i think you're going to add something go ahead yeah
1: so uh, you know i think that that
3: hybrid model is definitely something that that you know we developed over time i mean certainly you know i, th- I think customers want to think that they're you know they hear the word agile and are excited to to be a part of this and want to to do that but mm-hmm. they're not necessarily as ready for it as as they might think that they are so i think when they get into the reality of what that might look like if it's pure agile i think it's it becomes a little bit more challenging and so i think the hybrid model tends to address some of those those cons that miriam was describing yeah and I...
0: miriam so there was a phrase that, that was, I, I don't know where, I think it might have come from you, I'm not sure where, but uh, this concept of disciplined agile. Mm-hmm. Um, is that what you mean by the, this, uh, the, the, the Scrum approach that you, you, you were talking about earlier or is that something different? Uh,
1: it, it's an interesting one because I think Andrea and I were working on this and I, just, uh, the, I the idea came about when we were tasked with figuring out how to make fixed fee projects successful. Um, So then I had this aha moment, and i actually doing some research about this. Gartner calls it water scrum fall. So waterfall, scrum, Mm -hmm. and then it becomes serial again. Uh, So that terminology is closest to our hybrid methodology. Discipline agile is another form of agile, but it's not the same. But we did start using, because again, in the industry, as we talk to most customers, they cannot really... They don't have a distinction between, they don't fully understand the variations and every one of these um, models of Agile. Most people know Scrum because right. Scrum is the most uh, used Agile methodology, but there's all these uh, Kanban, uh, Discipline Agile, this um, uh, water, uh, water Scrum Fall, which is a mouthful. I haven't seen it referenced much other than an article in Gartner that we found, which kind of validated this thinking that the two can coexist. And I think the problem that Scrum solved for us was I need commitment at some point in the project before I start developing on what the scope is. And I have to, and sorry, Andrea, I have to have the ability to course correct what was sold. Yes. So I have to work in a waterfall way to do what we can to do in a sales cycle because we don't have enough time to go through the full discovery. So we still, the customer, the idea that, hey, we will go through the discovery in a waterfall fashion, but then we'll have a gate where we compare our uh, planned scope versus actual scope based on actually detailed discovery. And then they come to an agreement, whether are we budget-wise okay, are we over, are we under? Almost never think- under.
0: <laughs> but go ahead. <laughs> and that's that's where the zero change change orders, zero dollar change orders come from, right? Because it gives you the ability to amend something contractually um, mm-hmm. that you may or may not have known, you know, from the beginning, based on what people actually need. You know, I think one of the things that people go back and kind of study the history of of Agile. It was intended for software product companies. Uh, internally to be used for their product development and their product management. And the thing that services wraps around uh, uh, an SI wraps around that is the need to have a contractual relationship uh, with the customer to deliver specific deliverables or something that they can actually tangibly point back to in the contract. And I think that's where Mm -hmm. the um, kind of the yin and the yang of delivering external uh, agile projects comes because even we, we worked with a very large organization that, I won't name but they're probably known as one of the more agile companies in the world and it was difficult for them to procure from a, a, you know pure agile which is basically you know I don't know what you're going to get at the end this is the business objective um, we're going to give this amount of money in a contract and at the end of it you're going to end up with something well no procurement organization is going to let you buy that right so you've yeah. got to have some kind of a, a construct to to show um, you know something very tangible and you know I, Andrea I know as you were working with customers in the preset Sales cycle. Uh, many customers think they're agile or want to be agile, but but aren't necessarily um, able to move as fast and and um, as uh, uh, you know, kind of as, be as flexible as agile requires. I mean, would you typically? identify this early in the sales cycle or would you kind of let uh let the the process run and and get to to where you're actually building statements of work and then talk to them about okay well this is the way we would structure structure a a, a project with you
2: well i I mean yeah i think from a sales perspective you, you throw around the term agile and everybody thinks it's sexy and cool and you know we're just trying to sell and get them to love us and all of this and i so i I think depending on the organization, yeah, you probably don't spend um, a lot of t- time upfront talking to you. you talk about what our methodology is and how it's gonna work and all of that kind of stuff. And for the most part, people are sold, but kind of going back to, I think one of the comments I wanted to comment on that Miriam was saying about <laughs> correcting what happens in the sales cycle. I think one of the big challenges um, is when people, like when you think waterfall often, which I think a lot of times you see happen is, you know, people have this one shot to get their requirements out. And so they will come up with every single kind of off the wall requirement that ever, you know, every edge case and how they address it and all of these things. And suddenly you've got this huge amount of scope. People also tend to gravitate to how they've been doing things. And a lot of times when you're implementing new tools of this, when you're also trying to implement kind of usually you're not trying to just take what they have and put it on the new tool. You want to kind of evolve their processes and things. And I think most people, you know, until they see something play out, can't really articulate what they want to do. And so I think, um, so you can talk about it in the sales cycle, I think from that perspective in that, you know, you, you may think you want to do kind of ABC, but once you see it and play it and touch it and all of this stuff, that's probably going to evolve. And that's where I think from sales delivery, you kind of have that flexibility, um, you know, where you do have to have define scope, and we've got to price it based on something, and we have to kind of sell them on kind of what that methodology is going to be and look, but it, they've got to have some flexibility um, through that process to let that evolve. So, it's <clears throat> which goes back to the methodology, I think.
0: It all goes back to methodology. Doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and I think one of the things, too, is different uh, software vendors, different cloud vendors have different requirements around uh you know what they see as is, is the proper methodology whereas you know you may work with like a Google or you know maybe a Salesforce that are kind of a little bit uh, are very open in terms of what you do and how you do things other vendors for very good reasons um you know, whether it be an ERP package or uh you know HR package like a Workday or something have are a little bit more uh stringent on on what you can and can't do and how you can work things and laura you've seen lots of different um, methodologies i wonder if you had any analogies to draw to that or any any comments on that
3: yeah i mean you're exactly right i think you know they're excuse me especially in the technology world um that's that's what these companies do for a living and so they're very um they tend to be either very open um, and will consider, or they're, they're very prescriptive because they've been through it themselves and they have an idea. Um, I know when we partnered with, with Workday, they had a lot of good, you know, real-world lessons learned and were very clear about what the methodology needed to look like, and, and their partners um, weren't varying very much from that um, from that methodology. Right. Okay.
0: Yeah, I didn't actually mean to spend so much time on methodology, but it is is such an important topic because, you know, it's a part of how uh, systems integrators brand themselves, uh, especially today. I mean, when you look at cloud technologies, they do lend themselves to moving faster uh, and being more flexible because so much of the... Uh, enablement that you do is in the configuration layer. It's not in the coding layer. So you don't necessarily need to go away and have people go write code um, in German for, you know, for 12 months before you can see anything. And so because it is is more of a, uh, a, of, a of an ongoing, you know, kind of an iterative process, uh, the, the agile components lend themselves much better to these technologies. At the same time, though, companies need more structure oftentimes than... Than what true agile can provide either whether it be f- for procurement or for change management i mean i worked with uh one of the projects that we had in europe was a very 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 large uh, public s- public sector organization um and it, as committed as they were to being agile uh, there was just no way they were ever going to truly be able to adapt to agile and and so it becomes a a question of, you know, how structured do you need to make it so that the orga- their organization can come along with you, uh, which is a bit of a challenge. And I think that then leads me into sort of the next area of uh, questioning and around project management. And, and that is from a documentation standpoint, uh, what statuses are obvious, but I mean, how detailed should statuses be um, and how much documentation should you be providing back to a customer uh, from a value standpoint, you know, stuff that they'll get value from.
2: I'm going to say this is all Miriam because God knows Lori Asbury and I don't do such things.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, but as customers, you know what to expect. Uh, I mean, I think you do, actually, uh, Laurie, and... Laurie,
0: Lori, Lori does Google Sheets or, or Google uh, Docs very well, and Andrew does Google Sheets very well. <laughs>
2: Lori gives me a bunch of stuff, and I put it in a spreadsheet, and we try to call it a status report, and we send it back. But I'm sure Miriam does it really well. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
1: I I don't know if I do it really well, but it's one that it's been ingrained in me, and I've kind of like uh, I swear by it, because um, I feel uh, especially on long running projects, I would say, a customer forgets what they what they say and what decisions they make. Um, I feel a status report is a great vehicle to kind of go down on record on things that are important to the way the project is progressing. So status report, um, and actually mine is not very detailed uh, because it's um, the additive thing. So I mean, when I start a risk, a risk on this, it closes its face on, on, on a project, uh, on, a, on the status reports, so I would uh, recommend every project manager uh, and every organization that has projects going on with project managers to make that a required um, artifact that becomes that contractual, agreement on a much more frequent basis between the project team and the uh, consulting uh, firm on what where the project is at what are the issues what's being resolved that what's staying uh, on a as an unresolved issue for longer than it's um, desired so uh, i guess we didn't want to talk about status but this is already you know agreed upon that's important but of course i had to no, um, it is elaborate.
0: important because I think there's a balance, in, uh, uh, you know, for um, anybody who wants to answer this, but there, I think there's a balance between uh, how much do you status? Because you could status every little thing for documentation purposes and CYA purposes, but that doesn't do any value, doesn't add any value as well. So are there certain sections, certain topics that you feel like have to be in there, or there? I mean, where do you draw the line between what is necessary in a status report and what is not?
1: And I love the way we solved it at Appirio, um, because we have a template that is standardized. So no matter what project manager, what, what background you're coming in, our customers are used to a very specific layout. As far as what's important, obviously uh, um, progress, what happened. I mean, we typically talk about what happened last week, what happened this week. So basically showing what's happened as well as what's upcoming, that shows preparedness and planning i think that's an important part of the uh, any status report uh, budget status a view into how the budget is doing um, and then obviously you've got sections around the risks and issues and decisions that are being made um, you can have different flavorings of a status report but i would say those are the core uh, air, uh, core sections uh, at a period instead of having a single uh, indicator on the health of a project, we have actually broken it up more granularly, and I like that as well because sometimes a project may be financially in. From a scope perspective, it's starting to turn yellow. Eventually, it will have a financial impact as well. But as it stands right now, in this week, what we're seeing is potential scope creeps. Um, so we have three indicators that I feel are uh, it's a pretty good indicator. A set of indicators on assessing an overall status of a project. It's um, Scope, um, financials, and um, is it timeline? I think it's timeline. Uh, but uh, again, it can be customized, and none of this is not written in stone. I think it's just the, overall, it's a good core set that people may call it different things, but every status report should at least have these uh, these sections.
0: So, Lori, I will uh, as the person I think in the history of the world the only person in the history of the world that's ever actually done a status meeting in Haiku. Um, <laughs> <laughs> one, one of the challenges is actually, you know, getting everybody, and I don't just mean customers, but also getting the project team as well to, to pay attention to the status, status, whether it be a status uh, report or status meeting, you know, what are, what are the things that you can do to draw attention to the right, right topics and the right items within us, either a status report or a status meeting?
3: Well, you know, I mean, I think uh, Miriam had on on sort of providing that framework where you know there there is a template, so there is certain information that's expected, and you get into that routine. Um, I think it's it's really important to be able to um, to preview that with your customers, so there are no surprises uh, or no big surprises um, with the the broader integrated team. Um, you know, just making sure that the communication is is good there. Yeah, definitely. What
0: about yeah, status I think, meetings? Go ahead, Miriam. I, I,
1: I actually, it, um, I was about to talk about exactly what you're talking about. I think uh, Lori said one thing that resonated with me. The format of a status report is something you typically want to run by the customer as well customers have their own reporting needs, that status report gets passed on to others within the organization, so they may ask you for something specific to be included. So having the format of that template socialized with the customer is a good idea. But then what you just asked uh, Laurie around the meeting, I actually think a status report is great, but most customers don't read status reports. So uh, having that meeting is a critical part of making sure you're being heard. So typically, what I'd like to see is that a status report goes out, maybe a day earlier, and then the following day, you meet and cycle with the customer where you review the status report. It's not meant to go from top to bottom. Nobody, nothing, no one can really cover everything that's going on within the project, but it's your chance to be able to have captive audience where you can highlight what's important and what is it that you need the customer to take action on, or what you want a customer to be aware of—that feedback cycle from them.
3: Yeah. So I and I love that Miriam draws that distinction that she said, you know, it's fine to do these, but you, um, unless you have that meeting to talk about it, you're not necessarily being heard. And so that level of documentation serves two purposes, right? It's to memorialize decisions, and you know, it's it's to preserve the history so that. W- uh, when and if there are questions down the road, you can go back and reconstruct or understand what the history was. But in order to kind of move the project along, <clears throat> you know, you have to have those real time conversations. The other thing that I like that we did was, you know, just over time being able to automate more and more of it, so that um, you know the the that it was being done the same way, and that you know status reports sometimes can fall by the wayside or, or people are, are, you know, late in doing them or whatever. I think we did a really good job in really training folks, you know, how and when um, things needed to be done and what our expectations were and then putting in place those, you know, we all hated the automated reminders, but they were effective, right? They, they were They were a way of keeping everybody focused on what an important instrument it was.
0: I mean, being, being able to push a button and have all the information that already exists popu- pre-populate, that doesn't mean that you don't need to go add other pieces. But just being able to have some of that already there is, is I think, really key. Um, and honestly, it's not a great use of people's time to have to dig through systems to pull up budget information or you know risks that might have been added somewhere. Um, so the more that you can do, the better, for sure. One of the They're things great. that, this is kind of tying in uh, project statuses and meetings with Agile and Waterfall. So there's this phrase that gets thrown around a lot called a stand-up meeting. Um, this is a little bit like talking about unicorns in our last conversation. So what what, what does a stand-up meeting mean? <laughs>
3: well and i'm not sure the origin if it if it does come from the military but the idea is that um you know they're brief regular meetings that and you're supposed to stand up actually physically all stand up nobody's supposed to get comfortable you're not supposed to spend you know hours hashing through things everybody's going around and and doing very brief um updates but I don't know. Oh, Andrea's probably done all of her meetings of stand ups because that's the way she works. <laughs> I'm
2: standing as we speak, can't you, you tell? <laughs>
0: You're doing a stand up podcast.
2: <laughs> I just don't like sitting. But um.
0: <laughs> But uh, of, the, of the folks on, on, on this podcast, I mean, how many stand ups have you guys been on that have gone on for two hours? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that's going to be very tiring. I think people will be sitting at that point. It would be a sit-down kind of <laughs> meeting, not a stand-up anymore. So
0: do you think of a stand-up meeting different than a status meeting? I mean, what's the difference? Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, well, oftentimes I use the status meetings with the project sponsors. It It is a customer-focused thing. Uh, the input to the status report comes from the stand-up because that's where you identify issues, risks, blockers, that you cannot um, remove uh, during your standups. The standup formats generally are the same three questions. What did you do yesterday? What do you do plan to do today? What are your blockers? It's the same set of questions. And it's really meant to be, you go around virtual room or a physical room uh, and it needs to be quick and you need to be covering those three questions. And uh, it is with the project team, generally the dev team, um, because you are really oftentimes looking at a story status, how many things got completed What do you plan to complete today and what's preventing you from completing anything?
0: So it's really about moving work forward as opposed to reporting on what you've done. Correct. Correct. Good. I mean, we, we actually, we could probably do it like an entire series just on literally the mechanics of motive. Maybe we should at some (laughs) point on, on, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. moving a team forward. Um, I guess the, uh, we've got time for maybe one more series of questions here and, Uh, One thing that we've, we've talked a lot about this from the project management standpoint and also from kind of the SI standpoint, but I'm curious, as you look at customers that you've worked with, it's so important to make them comfortable in giving you feedback as well and having them be a... Uh, a very active part of the project, even though they've clearly hired an SI because they wanna outsource pieces of this. If they're not involved, you can't just do something to a customer, you have to do it with them. So what have you seen in the past that has has made uh, projects more successful um, by getting, you know what sort of uh, processes have you seen or, or tools have you seen or anything that you've seen to get a customer more engaged in the project management or the project interaction? Besides giving hi- uh, doing the meetings in Haiku. <laughs> and generally. that was very effective. It was. I mean, I seriously, it's the only project status I've listened to in months, years. So.
1: <laughs> I think, uh, again, love going back to the experiences that we've shared at a period where we inserted a quick one-minute survey in a status report. So the, the customer had the ability that every week when they received the status report, They would click a link and tell us how we were doing. We've structured it like a net promoter score, NPS, uh, but I I can't say enough about that kind of a feedback that is happening almost near real time within the context of the project, giving the project team the ability to do something about it. So I love that level of engagement, even though at the week 50, of the project would be sick of doing that every week. But even if they do it once every one month or once every six weeks, you still have a pretty good pattern of what's happening as well as the chance for you to course correct when it matters versus survey that they would receive at the end of the project. Yeah,
0: I think the the concept of getting feedback early and often is very important. Much like
3: bad news early and often, feedback early and often. Right,
0: um, and yeah, I love
3: that. You know. Right, and I and I love that we automated that and and gave sort of a a quick and easy sort of um, uh, way for customers to do it not not anonymously, but but without sort of the the pressure of their project manager talking to them and saying how are we doing, right? So I think it's important that um, you know the project manager do that, and I think that you know having other touch points as well, you know whether. Ah uh, from an account management standpoint, um, you know there is an account manager who's involved uh, at least a high enough level not to uh, you know stir the pot and cause trouble <laughs> but to to check in uh, periodically. I think you know different touch points along the way are important because again it gets back to to my favorite word relationship, right <laughs> and an open dialogue. Mm-hmm.
0: Andrea, I, uh, I, I lied. I said we had one more question, but I have one question for you. And this is something we all kind of think dealt with early on as you're evolving a services practice. How, what do you do with a customer that says, I don't need project management. I am my own project manager.
2: Yeah. Um, and that still comes up for me oftentimes. And I think, um, I think, <sighs> you have to explain kind of, you know, what the actual role is. And I mean, the project manager on the consultant side, um, and again, probably I, I only talked to this in sales, Miriam could probably talk about it better, um, is the, you know, they're keeping the consultant on track. They're making sure, you know, we're, we told you it's going to cost $100,000 and take eight weeks to do this. Um, we would need to make sure that our, our team is moving towards that the entire time. And so their role is to specifically, I mean, follow those tasks, make sure we're on budget, make sure we're on track. And I think the client side, there's still the need for somebody who's going to, you know, rest, get the client team, make sure their decisions are being made, make sure the right people are in the right meetings, make sure things are signed off and all that thing. I think they're two different functions. Um, and that, I think that role is definitely needed on the, partner side, on our side, um, to ensure that we're going to meet the timeline and the budgets and the scope and if scope changes and manage, you know, scope creep so that your budget doesn't blow up and things like that. Um, and I think those are probably kind of, their two different roles. And so, but that's generally often how I will talk to it during the sales cycle. I'd love to know how it happens after we sell it.
1: <laughs> you know, I think if you get back, Andrea, you should say, okay, then what you're asking for is a staff org model. We are happy yeah. to do that. No project sure. managers. I'm happy to give you the resources. Uh, I think uh, what happens on the, on the project side, obviously, I mean, I think what you said is that really the way it should happen. You should have, on the partner side, a, a project manager role, but a role similar to that on the customer side. Depending on the scale of the project, that becomes even a more important activity because the customer oftentimes doing something that the partner uh, team has dependency on. Who do you go to to push people from their end, let's say it's their IT who has to punch a hole in their firewall to make some API available or accessible? Um, So I think in an ideal world, you've got those two roles working in tandem together to be able to resolve everything that's going on. But I would say that um, some of the other arguments that I would say make sense to validate the need for a project manager is. Oftentimes, our customers don't know Salesforce well enough. Our project managers understand Salesforce. Not only do they understand project management as a discipline, they understand the ecosystem. They understand how our team interacts, how they work, what are they accountable for, how our offshore teams work. So I think there are elements. I mean, what kind of going back to what Lori um, you brought up earlier when we talked about staffing. We said, what is the project manager responsible for? Yes, all the core project management responsibilities aside, budgeting, scheduling, scope management, but the people management, a project manager's role is really managing the people, the team, the partner team. Who's going to do that in absence of a project manager?
0: Yeah, and and I would kind of close this segment by saying I think that there are uh, a lot of folks out there that are very good at at project reporting, um, telling you what's happened in the past, Uh, Telling you where the budget is, telling you what's been delivered, Um, but not at actually project management or what I would call project leading, which is about, don't just tell me what happened in the past, but tell me how we get from here to the end. Tell me what I need to do. Customers do want to be led. And and I think that that is one of the things that um, you know, folks that that have their uh, uh, their their project management um, uh, license and it, what's the certification called? I'm totally P, PMP, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. For folks that have their PMP, I mean, I think that's very good about how to use the tools, how do you uh, how do report on things, how do you look at work breakdown structures, but it doesn't necessarily tell you how to do the problem solving and the leading part of project management, and that mm-hmm. is ultimately what distinguishes a, a good SI, um, from, uh, or a great SI from an average or, or a, you know, a trailing SI. Um, and I think that's, you know, something that is, uh, uh, definitely, definitely a big difference. So, and you know, honestly, as I think through this, um, I've literally come up with like six different topics for future future podcasts. <laughs> so <laughs> we, there's so much more that I think we could wrap into this, but um, is uh, at least as a good starter for how do you think about just the basics of a project management within a within a. Uh, within a, a project with a customer. So uh, anyway, I think, uh, so the next time we get together, we actually have, um, uh, the next time we talk about the, the series in Scope to Deliver, we'll be talking about closing projects and, you know, how do you do that in a way that uh, kind of feeds the, uh, the life cycle. Uh, but, uh, it is, uh, there's so many other pieces in this. I honestly feel like we could probably spend seven, seven episodes just on, on managing customers, just, just trading, uh, different stories and examples. So anyway, um, with that in mind, I will now transition into our lightning round. I'll do a little bit of a kind of a music segment out of that. So we'll <laughs> kind of segue smoothly. All right. So, uh, I haven't, I didn't tell y'all what the question would be, um, Oh boy. I think I got these reversed, but that's all right. So, um, I've got two questions for today. We've got about probably 10 minutes left on the episode. So, um, you can pick y'all tell me what you want to cover. We can either do favorite people development story, um, favorite, you know, employee that, you know, you helped groom or you don't have to name names by the way. Um, or, uh, favorite place in the world for vacation. What do you, what do you want to do?
1: I guess we did. Tra- I mean, that's the easier one for me. Favorite place to vacation. The vacation yeah. But we talked about travel in the previous one.
0: Oh, that's good. Let's keep it. That'll be good. Everybody good with that? Yeah.
1: All right. So, welcome back to our
0: lightning round. We are gonna today's uh, fun topic is where is the f- your favorite place in the world to go on vacation? All right. So, I'll throw it out there for the
3: panel. What? Wh- where is your favorite place to go on vacation? So for me, I always struggle when you ask me to come up with one. (laughs) (laughs)
0: That's just not not our rule follower. I love that.
3: Yeah. So, but, and, and so I was, I was scratching my head like, okay, all this pressure, I have to just pick one place because there's not one that I'm to again and again, but (laughs) there are definitely elements for me. Like I need that variety, Um, but I love to sail. So any place, um, coastal with wind, where I can sail, that always tops the list for me. But I also like just exploring different areas. So,
0: are there certain places you like to sail more than others?
3: Would you like Um, like like rough waters? You like you like calm waters? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I so you know as I think about that, I haven't done a lot of exotic sailing, um, but. You know, I love to sail out of San Francisco Bay. The three areas primarily that I've sailed, San Francisco Bay, the Chesapeake Bay, and Pensacola, the Santa Rosa Sound. Um, So I like access to blue water, but I prefer a little bit more sheltered. More
0: variety. So (laughs) um, Chesapeake and San Francisco don't surprise me, but Pensacola, I don't really, I don't always think of that as, as like the sailing capital of the world what's so awesome about it
3: there's some good well the, the most awesome thing i know nothing about sailing by the way so <laughs> well, then, then i need to correct that we need to get you out on the boat but um the most awesome thing about pensacola is that it's a six-hour drive from huntsville <laughs>
1: so, that's
3: pretty awesome i'm pretty landlocked here so um it's easy access to the gulf coast but um but no the sailing is is great the the uh, wind is is great year-round and uh easy access to the gulf
0: and do you have uh, certain types of boats? I mean, like, do you like to do day sailing, or do you like those that you're going out and doing a bit of a sail trek?
3: Um, I like to be able to anchor, um, but I also like coming back to the dock. Um, but typically, somewhere between a 34 and a 39 foot sailboat is is kind of my sweet spot. To be precise. To be precise. But those right. are
0: the, and those are typically
3: typically overnight boats, right? Yes. 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 Yeah. Absolutely. It sounds sounds big. I don't know, but it does sound. <laughs> <big>. <laughs> I, I can't believe in all your travels, Lori, that you haven't, um, you know, mastered the art of sailing, and this is a serious oversight on my part as your friend, so I've got to get you out. I think, I think that's, we need to do a podcast, a nautical podcast, so the four of us from a boat. <laughs> I, I, I how did. Did. Yeah, I'll, that
0: I'll go for it
3: too. <laughs> Andrea, okay, so you...
0: I- <laughs> yeah, I actually, <laughs> I learned to sail on the Brazos River. So, um, and I thought it was an awesome sailor. So I don't know if you, the Brazos River is basically like a big creek with, with <laughs> a lot of mud in it. And to the point, I mean, they actually went to Baylor. So the the river, certain times of the year, they would actually dam it off. And that part of the river would be completely empty so you didn't even sail but I thought it was an awesome sailor because I could sail on the Brazos and I went to Mexico and uh, rented a Hobie Cat with some friends and before I knew it we were using the rudder to try to paddle back into in in, you know we 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 had no idea what we were doing so lesson for everybody out there if you learn to sail on a river it's not the same as sailing in
2: <laughs> so, so let me just, my sailing, I uh, went to San Diego State and actually took sailing as a PE class one semester. We went down to the bay and sailed, which sounded really awesome in like August, September. But even in San Diego in December, it wasn't so much fun. But we had to do a capsize drill. And myself and my partner were the only folks in the class who had an extra day of capsized drill by mistake. Um, so that, yeah, didn't turn out so well. And wow. then, as I've gotten older, I realize I get horribly seasick, sadly. So the thought of being on a boat for 24 hours, I'd either have to take so much Dramamine that I'd be out asleep the entire time. So that is why, Laurie, we have never sailed together. <laughs> that explains a lot.
0: <laughs> so, Adrian, while we're with you, what about your favorite place in the world to go on vacation?
2: So I'm going to say that I probably have not yet been to my favorite place in the world because I'm not exactly sure which one it is, but I always, always, always and my kids will tell you this will gravitate towards tropical I love you give me turquoise water and blue sand. I mean, sorry, it's blue sand. Turquoise blue water and white
1: sand. I was going to wow. say, where is the blue sand? I haven't seen that one. I have been yes. there.
2: Um, I mean, that is my, like, happy place. Obviously, I live in San Diego, um, so uh, near the ocean. But I, I any tropical, we, we lived in Hawaii for a while. We go back to Hawaii occasionally. I've gone to the Caribbean, to Costa Rica last year. Um, so, and, and I also like a mix of, I kind of prefer, not too remote, because I do like places where you can eat and drink without having to worry too much about, foodborne illness and such. But um, yeah, you give me the most turquoise water and white sand and I am like as happy as can be. So I'm looking for recommendations actually for this summer's trip. Anybody has got one? I have tons of recommendations. I don't, I don't know any more <laughs> blue sand.
3: <so>.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I've been black sand beaches in Hawaii and such, but I think it's just that that image of the, you know, that turquoise blue and the white sand, which we it's not California beaches. We did have those in Hawaii when we lived there and go back and obviously the Caribbean, but any beach, anywhere where it's sunny and warm and blue sky and palm trees and my California girlfriend.
3: <laughs> <Yeah,
0: exactly. laughs> Miriam, do you have any recommendations for her?
1: Oh, I have plenty. I mean, uh, I think she's gone to a number of them. I mean, I'm obviously I'm pretty consistent in my choice of travel. I think Caribbean has always been, um, uh, my top choice. And I just feel that it's very hard to go back to the same place
3: mm-hmm.
1: because um, there's too many places to see, but then ultimately when you come and kind of book your uh, trip, we do end up going back to the same three islands and we keep rotating. They're the go-to ones, but every once in a while we kind of go somewhere new. I would say, um, I suggest you know, considering the U.S. Virgin Islands, I love St. John's, um, but St. Thomas, if you go to St. Thomas, you can actually take a quick st john's or stay at st john's but that's when you have to like a fly in boat ride over to where you need to go um so uh, i don't have i don't know if i have yet gone to my favorite place but anywhere that meets those criteria that andrea said with the exception of the sand being white not blue um, (laughs) i'm in (laughs) just sign me up and i'm gonna be there and it's just amazing how energizing it is to just be at peace water warmth um yeah i think any coastal water i think has that calming effect no matter how you look at it um and i enjoy maine the same way but maine is cold it's different kind of experience with water it's equally
0: <laughs> <laughs> She's booked her trip <laughs> Blue- bluebell had had enough <laughs> cool well i'll 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 close out since she dropped off i uh lori i'm going to follow you and say i can't just pick one place i mean i think there are different places for different reasons. If I could only put, if I were only allowed to go one place in the world, it'd be Italy, um, mm-hmm. mainly because you do get that really good mix of food and which is, I love the food. You get the food, you get the history, you get uh, the, you got the coast, you've got the mountains if you go to the Dolomites. I mean, I do think it's, it's a lot of everything all in one place, but uh, given a choice, um, you know, I kind of segment vacations into different categories. One is to go learn something. Um, you know, to go learn something my probably my go to and, and I have a hard time thinking of this place as a vacation anymore because I lived there for a while, but it is London. Uh, I think it's the one city in the world where you can literally, you know, every hour, go experience something different and learn something different. And, and it's, it's just a, a great place for that. Um, I, I do love Italy for, uh, for the food and the vacation, Europe in general, but especially Italy. And then anything I can do outdoors. Um, you know, I, I like the mountains. I like, uh, I like skiing. Uh, I like fishing. I need to try sailing apparently. Cause that's the one thing I don't <laughs> seem to, the, sailing on the Brazos is not the same. Um, but again, going back to just one place, it would, it would be Italy, probably the Amalfi coast. Uh, where it's just absolutely the most beautiful place in the world and the most amazing food in the world. And also at times during the year, the most crowded place in the world. So um, avoid August, uh, j- late July and August. But uh, So that that actually, you know, I, I'm ready to go on vacation now. I don't know about y'all. Yeah, no, where, where, where are we going? <laughs>
2: Let's go.
3: Great. So I think <laughs> as
0: we uh, resume for episode nine, we have a special episode. We're going to be uh, doing a, a team interview of uh, Mike Eppner, who was uh, our, uh, our SVP of, of services and services operations at Appirio uh, for a number of years and many of us worked with very closely. Um, so look forward to, to that. He, is, he was often the method, the madness. Uh, for for what we did, um, you know, for for kind of those those middling years as we were growing so fast and building on the services team, and then uh, the episode after that will be uh, our final in the scope to delivery session, on uh, on how to close a project. And make sure you you get take the right things away from it. So, again, thanks everybody for joining today, and we will look forward to having you back on episode number nine. <laughs> on an upcoming episode. But in the meantime, visit our website at realtechreallife.com. Check out our episode guide and leave us comments and feedback and questions that you'd like to have us answer in future episodes. Thanks for listening and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher.